Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Starting at verse 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoke, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will also make me full of gladness, presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead, he has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would have set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and God. This Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
said to Peter and the rest of the apostles and brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Many other words, more witness, continue to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. So as a pastor, from time to time, I read accounts of revivals that take place in our in our time and in the times before. And I'm always amazed at the strong ways in which hundreds of people respond to the gospel. Here in this particular uh, sermon that Peter gave on Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 people came to Christ, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ on that Sunday. That Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 people. That is 26 times more people were added to the church on that Sunday. Now, could you imagine? Let's say that we have 50 people here. Who's our mathematician? Bob, are you our mathematician? Do, do the crude math in your head. You're on, you're on. Let's say that we have 50 people here this morning. Let's say it's multiplied 25 fold. 12,500? Higher. 12,500 in one day. Our, our, our crew would be multiplied 25, 26 times. Now, can you imagine that? That kind of mathematics that would take place on one Sunday. Peter preached a simple sermon that cut right to the heart and soul of people. And immediately, 3,000 people were added. 3,000. So the question for me is, I'm, I'm studying this and getting into God's Word and trying to understand what was all going on. What dynamics were taking place? What did Peter do that morning that brought about 3,000 lives? And the first thing I had to realize is it was not Peter. It was not Peter with his, his excellence as a, a fisherman standing doing his public uh, sermon that brought people to Christ. That morning was a special morning unlike any other morning. It was the first pouring out of the Spirit and people responded through a simple fisherman like Peter who proclaimed boldly the Word of God. One of the first things that we have got to remember is that this is not just a unique Sunday. There are certain things that are absolutely true for us this morning and things that we have got to remember. We probably cannot duplicate 
Pentecost Sunday. And that is not our goal. But there are things that we have to remember that are still true today. The Word of God is the Word of God. That is not confined to a certain time or context, but it's true for history because of the fact that it is God's Word. And He is faithful and true to His Word. Hebrews 4, 12 says this about the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the soul. The Word of God is a piercing, sharp, two-edged sword that lays open the true condition of men, women, and children's souls. Paul said, take the sword of the, what? Sword of the, sword of the Spirit. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The reason that the Word of God can have such power to open a heart is because it is the sword of the Spirit. It's not the sword of man. It's not Paul just, man, if I just read this, I can. 3,000 people come to Christ. It is the sword of the Spirit. It does not merely have man's endorsement or man's power behind it. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. The true Word of God is in His Word. And He loves it and honors it and He empowers it. So when we read like verse 37, follow along with me. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. When we read verses like that, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Why? Because Peter was preaching God's Word. If you look at this, and you look at all your footnotes, you see that Joel chapter 2 was quoted. You see that Psalm 16 was quoted. You see Psalm 110 was quoted. And you also see that Jesus Christ was, who is the Word of God, was preached. And the amazing thing is that this is a simple fisherman preaching the Word of God from what? He did not have a scroll of papyrus where he was saying, Hear ye, hear ye. This simple fisherman this blue-collar laborer had the Word of God memorized. So that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, he preached the Word of God from what? Memory. God so honored that and empowered it that that day, 3,000 people cut to the very heart. So what happened? What happened when the Word was faithfully preached, when the Word of God was shared? The people cried out to Peter and to the apostles and said, what shall we do? They heard this, this convicting deep Word and the Spirit of God pierced their hearts and their response was, what shall we do? last time that you read the Word of God and as you were reading it, you 
was so cut to the heart that he said, what do I do? What do I do? I, I don't know how to respond to this, but I, I feel like there's some kind of response that needs to take place in me because I have been cut to the very heart of my very being. What do I do? And what a wonderful thing it is that after years and years of being apart from God, of being part of denial, of being part of rebellion, a person can no longer resist the word of God, but ask, what shall I do? The question is true, not only for some 2,000 years ago, the question is true for you this morning. As you hear the word of God preached, expounded upon, because Peter, later on, said that he, he exhorted them and taught them with many other words. Many other words. As you hear the word of God this morning, is there anything inside of you saying, what shall I do? What, how do I respond to this? So my prayer is that God will so fill us this morning with the Spirit. So fill us with the Spirit and with His Word that week after week after week after week, day after day, as you get together in your missional communities, as you get together as a Manitoba staff, as you get together husbands and wife with your children, your extended family, you get together week after week as you hear the Word of God, as the Spirit teaches you and preaches to you, you cannot help but answer. What do I do? What shall I do? Before we look at the answer that was that Peter gave, we need to ask what the need is. When the people said, what must I do? It gave the indication that they had a deep, deep need. They weren't looking just for a moral change. Okay, well, so how do I stop doing this? Give me a five-step program to get out of this issue. They weren't saying, hey, sign me up for the Dave Ramsey course because I want to get from total, total debt to financial freedom to live like no one else can live, or however he says that. That's not what they were looking for. There was a deeper need that was being addressed. They were saying, I need something, and what must I do to get it? And Peter gave two explicit answers in verse 38 as to what they needed to do. Look at verse 38 with me. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Number one, for the forgiveness of sins. And number two, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What are their deepest needs that they needed? Number one, forgiveness of sins. That is their deepest need. They were apart from God. They were objects of God's wrath. And what did they need to bridge that great divide? They needed the forgiveness of sins. That is the number one. And later, number two will come to, is that they needed the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
First, they needed to be forgiven by God. Today, in our society, there's something called relativism. Relativism. One of the saddest things about relativism in our day is that it ultimately undermines God's forgiveness. Relativism. Well, it's relative to me, my experience, my wants, my needs. It's only relative to me. Relativism. And here's what I mean. Relativism constantly minimizes or denies the absoluteness of God. It, it functions as if God had no clear or unchanging character, as though there was no divine measure or standard for human character. You've heard it before. Well, it's not wrong for me, maybe for you, but for me, it's not that big of a deal. The reality is that relativism does not get along with, with biblical statements like, be holy because I'm holy. That's a different kind of relativism as I'm related to God. God says, be holy because I'm holy. Don't, don't go like this. Don't compare yourself this way. Comparing yourself dirt to dirt. Be holy because I am holy. But because relativism absolutes yourself, it creates a whole set of problems. It makes yourself the standard of what is good and what is acceptable. How often do you play that game, don't you? You become the standard of what is good, acceptable, and moral, and right. And ultimately, the only role that God would play in this relativism is this divine um, endorsement of your own self-affirmation. You, you start reading scripture in a different way to affirm you. You start proof texting, taking things out of context to affirm me. God functions as a booster for your the absoluteness of you. If he presents himself as one of one with standards or commit commandments, then he is part of our problem. Not part of the solution. Relative, relativism destroys forgiveness. It undermines the glory of God's grace in, in forgiveness. It sounds gracious on the surface, but to say that God has no laws, no standards, no expectations, no commandments, no threats, that he is simply there to affirm me in whatever I happen to be or do, that sounds like grace and freedom. There's one massive glitch. It destroys forgiveness. That's found in Jesus Christ. Where there's no law, no just standard, no legitimate expectation, no normative way of relating to God and to humanity, there can be no forgiveness. But I want to offer a biblical hope this morning. Not a relativistic 
these people in verse 37 were cut to the heart because they saw that God had made Jesus Christ Lord and Christ. And they had killed him. They had killed him with the hands of lawless men. In other words, they were utterly at odds with who? Not with each other. They were utterly at odds with God. They killed the promised Messiah. They were at odds. You killed my son? I don't care what the court does to you. You need to fear me. These people were at odds with God the Father who sent His one and only Son and they killed Him. They were at odds with Him. They were in violation to God's Word and His Son. God was one way. They were another way. They did not have His affirmation, nor should they have on their own. What they desperately need and what we desperately need. And what God in amazing grace is, is ready to give is forgiveness. They had offended God. They had violated God. They had disobeyed God. And there was only one hope. That God might find a way to be a holy God that He is and yet let it go and forgive. That's exactly what happened with the death of this So I can take the words at the end of verse 40 and apply them to us this morning with all urgency, all the urgency that I can. When he says, be saved from this crooked generation. The most crooked thing about this generation is not the music that we listen to, not what we watch, not what we put into our head. The most crooked thing about this generation is that we have created ways of salvation without God. We've created ways to save ourselves without God. We take scripture and we apply it morally. We, we live the moral right way of life. And we create salvation apart from God. And therefore, if we continue to do that, we are utterly without hope. There is a holy God and in the name of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. There is hope. And that's the first thing that we have, that we need, is true, biblical forgiveness. And God stands ready to meet. The second thing that we absolutely need this morning, and that we saw in this, in this account, the second thing that Peter says is to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 38 he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, the first need. And number two, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is it 
Is this the promise of being baptized in the Spirit, like we see in uh, Acts 1, verse 5? Or being filled with the Spirit, Acts 2, verse 4? Or being empowered by the Spirit, 1, verse 8? Or being indwelt with the Spirit, which we see in 1 Corinthians 6? The longer that I meditate on these, it's not just one. It does not mean that we choose one over the other. The answer is this. If you truly repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is given. Somebody turn that off. If you truly repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will be given to you and will make a difference in your life. And from that day on, you will have the Holy Spirit. All it says is that from the day of repentance and your identification in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will be work at work in your life as a gift. From the first day of your faith, you can know that He is yours because of this promise. From that day on, you can begin to seek His extraordinary powers. But what do we typically do? We run into those ruts in our lives, those dry spells in our lives. We run into those times where we fall back into moral failure. And what do we do? We want to get ourselves up out of that ditch, that muck, with our, by pulling our own bootstraps up. And we, man, I'm going to work this out on my own. I'm going to heal that by myself. The reality is that we have been given the work and power, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us who gives us strength to live holy lives. So when God says, be holy, because I am holy, we can say, yeah, that's possible. Not on my own strength, because man, I always slide down. But by the power of the Spirit, who has been given to me as a gift, I can live a holy life. Day by day, growing in holiness. Because of the great power that resides within me. Power of the Spirit. So what do we do? What is the answer to the question in verse 37? What shall we do? What shall we do so that our sins will be forgiven and that we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? What, what, how do we do this? These are my two great needs. I need forgiveness because there's a holy God who has a righteous anger and has every right to totally obliterate me. I need forgiveness and I also need the strength, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do I do? Verse 38 again gives the answer. Repent and be baptized. Repentance is not just regret. No. Sorry, I did that again. It's not repentance. It's just a courtesy and I'm sorry. True repentance, when you are cut to the heart, true repentance is more than just feeling sorry. It means following through on that conviction. 
and turning around. So as you hear the word of God this morning, man, there is great, I have great need for forgiveness of sin this morning in this area of my life. You don't have to say it out loud, but what is that area that God, through His Spirit, is bringing conviction to your heart? What is that area? Is it an area of lust? Is it an area of laziness? Is it an area of indifference? Is it an area of you fill in the blank? That is a deep conviction that God says, listen, don't say I'm sorry for it again. Act on that conviction and turn and go another way. Go the other direction. Change your mind, your heart, so that you are no longer at odds with God, but in sync with God. Jesus spoke to Paul in Acts 26, 18, about this turning that leads to forgiveness and gave Paul his commission in these words. I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to opposite of darkness is light. Thank you for participation. So, I send you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan that they may receive forgiveness for their sins. That is, that is the commission, even for me this morning, and for you this morning, as you are in your, your missional communities, your conversations that you have. Man, I am sitting here this morning to offer forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, we need to turn from darkness and go the other direction and go towards light. We need to turn from the power of Satan that he has on our life and kill it with the power of the Spirit and go in the opposite direction. That is repentance, turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God. It's a reversal of the direction of your life toward God. What shall we do? First thing, first step, repent. What is it that God is saying, Paul Vroom, you need to repent of this. And I'll tell you, the list is long. What is it? It might be a good exercise for you to, before you leave here, maybe that's part of your communion exercise, that before you come up and receive the bread and, and the wine, that you think, okay, what is it that I need to repent of? What is it? Second thing that they needed was to be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Every one of you. Baptism is a sign and a seal of our identity being changed. We are being identified with Christ in his life and his death. I don't know how many of you ever really played in the pool with small children, and maybe you've taken a step too far away, or my wife and I, when we first were teaching Grace and Isaac how to swim, we put them up on the edge, and we go out a little bit, say, okay, jump, 
the first few times you catch it, right? Keeping, maybe there's a little splash up the face. Each time. Allow them to go a little bit further. A little bit further. A little bit further. Finally, come! And they jump in and they go down. And all of a sudden they come up and what do they do? They're breathing. For what? Because they want to have life. And when we talk about baptism, what is it? We are identifying with the, the death of Christ going down under the water. The waters of baptism going down under, dying to self, dying to me, my needs. Oh, Father, your will be done in my life. But you don't stay there, do you? I hope not. In baptism, we come up with resurrection power. Lungs being filled with fresh gospel air. That is what we need. Repent. Turn. Be baptized. Identify yourself with Christ. In his life, his death, and his resurrection. Identify yourself no longer with the world and the things that the world says about you. Identify yourself with Christ. There's no saving power in baptism whether you believe in infant or adult baptism, there is no power in baptism to save you. It changes, though, where your identity is found. I am no longer a child of this world. I am now a child of the King. My identity is found in Him. Found in Him. So repent. Repent. Turn the other direction. Remember, if you need questions about identity, be found in Him, saved through Him, by Him, for Him. Be identified in Christ. Pentecost Sunday, the internet to go on for hours. observations. I want to remind you and point you again to the unbelievable good news in this text. Unbelievable good news. It shows us even if you are a murderer of the Son of God, God himself stands ready to forgive. And that is good news. And not only to forgive you, but to give you spirit. In other words, he is willing to cancel all of your debts and then come and live with you, guide you, change you, and empower you. The question still remains. So what happens if this Yodaic church is filled with gospel-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled people? So what? Is there anything that should be different about us? About our community? About when the Spirit fills us on a daily basis and transforms us and empowers us to do His will? Is there anything different about us? 
Or do you just put on your good moral Sunday clothes and then go back home to the way that you do life? 